guys sang so well this morning. If you haven't caught on already, what's our theme this morning? It's unity. Unity coming up all over the place this morning from the, like Dwayne said, from the opening, hopefully now to the closing of our service this morning. And as I think about unity, my heart keeps going back over and over again to Psalm chapter 133. Unity is just, is highlighted from, it's only, it's a short psalm, three verses, but unity is highlighted in that psalm and we'll continue on that topic this morning. Like we've mentioned before, our business meeting is right after church where we get to come together as members and speak together. And as I think about this church, Church of the Canyons, unity is what has gotten us through the past couple of years and it's unity that will take us into the future. So let's stand as we read Psalm 133, verses 1 to 3. All right? This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. You may be seated. You know, there's a, uh, there's a clever yet sad poem. It goes like this. To live above with saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know... That's a different story. <laughs> now, wouldn't you think that having a common fellowship or a common Lord, a common Savior, a common church, and even from an Israelite perspective, a common ancestry, a common call, or a common covenant, wouldn't you think that unity would be prevalent? And yet, sometimes, the people you know the most end up hurting you the most. In our passage today comes at the end of what's known as the, the section of scripture known as the Psalms of Ascent. That's just the name for the Psalms of Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. It's a group of 15 Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. So the Jews, they memorized them and then they sung or recited them on their ascent to Jerusalem. And there were three different feasts or festivals during the year where Jews would go and travel to Jerusalem. And so when you understand the topography and geography of the land of Israel, you understand then from an elevation perspective, you'd be ascending the hill to Jerusalem, thus the Psalms of Ascent. And this psalm was written by David. We see that at the heading. And for us to understand this psalm, I'd like to give just a little bit of context to, to know why in the world did he write this and when did he write this? And it's not really hard to figure out when David wrote this psalm, because if you look at the course of David's life, it would be a very narrow window where it would have worked. Remember, David was anointed king when he was young, and he spent time in the service of King Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, but in a sense, you know, he was a, a king ruling from the north. And so then David spent 20 years or so on the run from Saul, because Saul felt um, like he was being taken advantage of from David. And so David spent those 20 years chasing him down, trying to kill him, and David fled into the wilderness. But it wasn't until David, uh, Saul died that David was able to come back to Jerusalem. And, but, but Saul, 
near his death, he had a different idea of who the throne would pass to. And he didn't pass the throne to David, but he passed it to his son, Ishbosheth. And his general, General Abner, propped him up and he tried to lead a, a rival kingdom from the north. And eventually, David, he consolidated the north and the south when Ishbosheth died. And Joab, his general, ended up murdering Abner. And that brought the 12 tribes of Israel into harmony. It's nothing like murdering your opposition to bring about unity, right? Well, that's exactly what happened in the land of Israel. Finally, these 12 tribes were united under David's reign. And there was indeed a time of peace. But this lasted only for about a decade, up until 2 Samuel chapter 11. And so you see it, for you can read 2 Samuel from chapter 6 to 11. This is the, the prime time of where this could have been written. David, he's finally consolidating everything. He brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is now not only the political capital of the nation, it's also the religious capital of the nation because the Ark is dwelling there. And so 2 Samuel chapter 6 through 11, that's where, the, where David, you, you read, he's dancing before the Lord. And this little window of 2 Samuel, is, this is where the psalm has most likely been written. This is, a, this is a happy day song. Happy because the 12 tribes are in harmony with one another. David is on the throne and all the 12 tribes spoke as one man. But, and there's always a but, right? We know that that didn't last long. And David, he'd eventually leave in exile as his own son Absalom would become king. And ultimately, after living as a political refugee, he was able to return. But when he did, his kingdom never reached the heights it had before when he passed it to Solomon. And so Solomon, he was able to hold it together for a little bit. But when Solomon died, the the, uh, civil war broke out in Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel were never united again in any real way. Why do we go over this history? Well, I, I want you to know and to understand and to show you that there's only this small window that this psalm could have been written. And that's, again, 2 Samuel chapter 6 through 11. And I don't think when, when David wrote this psalm down, I, didn't, I don't think he knew how this psalm would be used in the life of Israel and now even believers. But even centuries after David's death, the Jews would memorize this psalm and they would sing it as they went to Jerusalem. This pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it would have been a difficult trip. For some of the Israelites who might have lived in Jericho, it would only take them about a day or a day and a half to walk up the mountain to Jericho. Others, other believers or other Jews would, uh, who lived maybe in Asia Minor or even in Egypt, it was a long journey filled with danger. But they had a songbook to sing while they made this journey. You know, they didn't have Spotify or YouTube or Audible books or podcasts to listen to. No, they had the, they had the Psalms to sing and to, re- to recite. And can you imagine, as you think about making this journey to Jerusalem, could you imagine the propensity for family division on this kind of journey? You know, we have a minivan and it's seen bigger arguments than, on, on much shorter journeys than that to Jerusalem. You know, this psalm, Psalm 133, it begins with an exclamation about the goodness of brothers dwelling together. 
And then it's followed up by two hyperbolic illustrations that cause us to scratch our heads and ask ourselves, what does that even mean? But I believe that after this morning, we can all be moved not only to a greater understanding of its meaning, but a greater appreciation of the beauty of spiritual unity, the loveliness and goodness of fellowship together with God's people. The psalm it's a celebration of the blessing of fellowship with God's people. And it's seen in the unity as they gather together. And so it teaches us to consider what it actually means to praise God in spiritual unity. A final, uh, these, these last three psalms of this section of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 132, 33, and 34, they all have a common word within it. It's Zion, Zion. And these were used as, as they were approaching Jerusalem and then entering into Jerusalem and then leaving or anticipating leaving Jerusalem respectively. Psalm 132 depicts the Ark of the Covenant coming to Mount Zion. And Psalm 133, our text for the morning, it's a picture of God bringing blessings upon Zion. And then in Psalm 134, it's a revelation that Zion is a place that God has blessed his people. Again, Psalm 132 was for the time right as they were approaching Jerusalem. And then after a week of celebration at the festival, they, at the end of the week, Psalm 133 expressed their gratitude for the unity that people had experienced while they worshiped God. And then as they return home, Psalm 134 reflecting on all the blessings that God has given them in those feast times. And so hopefully that helps us understand and to unpack Psalm 133. Structurally, as you look at Psalm 133, it has what's known as a chiastic structure. Don't be scared. So you just go think back to your high school English class. A chiasm, meaning the poem is, is structured in the shape of an X. Okay? Verses 1 and 3 are blessings. And then at the beginning of verse 2 and 3 are the illustrations of oil and the dew. And then right in the center, there's a focus on the ministry of the priest, Aaron. And so let's look at this psalm in three parts. You have blank notes in front of you. We're going to see three points this morning as we pursue a greater understanding of the beauty of fellowship. And that ought to provoke us in a, in a way that we can uh, praise in spiritual unity. Let's start with point number one. We can call this the celebration of unity. The celebration of unity. Verse one begins with a word that's intended to cause us to pay attention. Behold. Behold is a word that implies that we must pay attention. We must, be caref we must pay careful attention to, about, to what's about to be said. And see, the reader needs to hear this. This is why this psalm is often classified as wisdom or a teaching psalm. And it tells us about the blessedness and pleasantness and goodness of brotherly unity. And it does so by observing it and then celebrating it. And then it provokes God, God's people to pursue unity. You know, unity sometimes is hard to find. But as one commentator says, even in the absence of unity, we can teach the blessings of it. Okay, we're reminded at the outset with this word, behold, pay attention, look at this, wake up. There is beauty and value and preciousness and worthiness when there is spiritual unity. How good, the, the author David 
continues. How good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That identical phrase, brothers dwelling together, it's identical. It shows up in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And in that passage, it's referring to the family unit, the biological family, literally brothers, children of the same father. In the Old Testament, this kind of phrase refers to the natural family and then to the extended family. But it it can also be used to refer to those who live in close proximity to one another. Those who might be, uh, you might be responsible for those within your community. See, brothers who dwell together in unity was to speak of those who are close-knit, who live together in the same tribe or the same common area. And the psalmist, David, he uses this concept of brothers because he wants us to feel that familial connection. He wanted travelers to be mindful of the family-like nature of their journey, that they were in this together. And the emphasis here is to dwell together, being together together. There are relationships that are closer than blood. It was the oneness of heart and purpose that David focuses on here. And so when you think about the purpose of this psalm or the sets of psalms, it helps us to understand that there's no need to restrict the application to just the family unit, but but Psalm 133 can be used within the context of who you're closest to. Certainly this psalm finds application in the family. I'm not denying that, but scripture is full of stories of fractured families, aren't they? Abraham and Lot, Joseph and his brothers, David and his family. And today you might know someone who aren't on speaking terms with their own family. And so as you think about preparing for a journey to Jerusalem, can you imagine some of the problems that the worshipers would face on a journey like this? to prepare a family to travel miles along ancient roads with all the supplies that they would need, all the sacrificial animals and offerings, all the stuff the family needs to travel on foot, all the stuff that the kids need to go travel whenever they leave the house, the logistics of food and water, the disagreements along the way with one another, the road filled with dangers, Wild animals, logistics of travel in the ancient world were were fraught with robbers and thieves along the way. And then to think of the the number, the amount of travelers headed to Jerusalem all in the same way. It's it's the ancient equivalent of being stuck on the 405 on Thanksgiving weekend. (laughs) You know, so uh, people are trying to get to Jerusalem. Then they find their relatives within the city and the families then have to stick together. And then when they finally arrive in the city, you can imagine the congestion that's there and the crowds and tempers could be running high as travelers find rest from the journey. Not only that, as soon as they get there, I can only imagine they started anticipating the journey back home, right? And everything just doesn't quite fit right in the car on the way back, right? You know, it's much easier when we think about unity to talk about unity, but seeking to accomplish it is a lot more difficult. And we know why that is. It's because sin, sin exists. Sin brings disunity. And you can't just ignore sin away. Sin in the life is like, you know, if if you did ignore it, it's like having a water leak in your wall that develops mold over time and you just slap some paint over it. It doesn't get rid of the problem. It just continues to make it grow. You just can't see it. 
And so Psalm 133's original context reminds us that far more than just applying this to the home, there was a kind of necessary brotherly unity that the people needed to find along their way to Jerusalem. When God's people came together to worship him in unity, David, he describes it two ways. He says, it's good. look at the text, how good and pleasant it is. Good and pleasant. Good is one of those words that it's hard to define, but you know it when you see it. Right? It means excellent or good or noble or good. It, it, it kind of describes itself. Philosophers have tried to define it over the years and expand on it. But when we see the word good and you think about it scripturally, we know that it's God who is good, both in nature and action. It's an objective type of word. Good emphasizes the objective and the inherent nature of the unity that is accomplished. When brothers dwell together in unity, when worshipers have harmony and peace together, when there's lack of discord, lack of difficulty, life without tension, then that is good. And then there's that word pleasant. Not just good, but it's pleasant. It's a word that could be translated sweet or delightful. And this is more of a subjective definition. It's, a, it's an experiential kind of word. And we know, right, that good and pleasant, they don't mean the same thing, right? Something can be good, but not pleasant, like cardio, right? The treadmill is good for you, but sometimes it's horrible. Just speaking for myself. And we understand that something, some things can be pleasant, but not good, like a strawberry shake from in and out Right? We understand that there are things that are good and not pleasant and things that are pleasant and not good. But unity, true spiritual unity, is both good and pleasant. Brothers dwelling together, it says. This means that there's, the spiritual lone ranger is not in the conversation here. We live together. There's plurality. We're brothers and sisters together. We're rubbing shoulders with one another. And this psalm is an invitation to those who are by nature predisposed to spiritual isolation. To enter in, come experience the joy of unity. That's what the psalm is calling us to do by celebrating the goodness and the pleasantness of brothers dwelling together in unity. See, these travelers reflected on their week of worship And their song was intended to reinforce in their hearts all that they had to be grateful for. When you focus on this, the the travelers there, they weren't focused on uh, replaying in their minds all the things that were difficult along the way and not bringing up old grudges or not longing for the good old days or to complain about their circumstances or to be discontent. But here's what they did. They used this psalm to remind themselves that there was nothing sweeter than being with God's people. That is the celebration of unity. Celebration of unity. Second point this morning. Number two, we're going to see the snapshot of unity. The snapshot of unity. If unity is good, then what is it like? David here gives us two illustrations. He gives gives us two pictures of what unity is like. Look at Psalm 133, 2 and 3. He gives us some peculiar illustrations of unity that just might seem a little odd as you read it. David uses two hyperbolic, over-the-top, exaggerated illustrations to get his point across. He says, unity is like the precious oil 
upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down to the edge of his robes. The first snapshot here or illustration reinforces what this unity feels like. See, David, he employs a simile here. He, he describes unity being like precious oil, good or excellent oil. We have to understand in antiquity, oil is used as a, a salve or a medic, medicine. It was also seen as an illustration of God's blessing upon you. David here, isn't, he's not talking about just any oil you find off the street. He's talking about a special oil used for priests in the service of the Lord, in the tabernacle, and in the temple. And the, the, the recipes given in Exodus chapter 30. It's a fragrant, special oil. The Israelites were given this recipe for the sacred oil by God himself. And this oil, it was used by Aaron, the high priest, on, and on him, and then all the priestly instruments used in service. And then it teaches that the priesthood, all the other priests, were then anointed with it. And you couldn't pour it on any other person except for a priest. So any common Israelite was forbidden not to only have this oil, but to have it applied to them. But also it was forbidden to make any oil like it. So if Israel tried to make this oil, they'd be cut off. Meaning, you die. Cut off from the people. And so what is it that made this oil so special? See, it wasn't the recipe. It wasn't the ratio of olive oil to myrrh. What made this oil so important was what it represented. You see, the entire process demonstrated here is the ordination or the setting apart of the high priest to convey a sacred blessing from God himself. Then, as that fragrant, scented, sacred oil was poured on the head of the priest, it represented the consecration into priestly service, and that priest, in turn, represented the entirety of the nation before God. And then that nation was then intended by God as a priest-like people to the nations that are watching them. So a priest, he would receive this mark of consecration being set apart by God to be a representative of all the nation before God and then to, be a, uh, to represent God to the nation. And this was a privilege. This was kind of worship that God required from his people. And then as the oil was being put upon the priest's head, naturally, where would it go? Down. Down. Down from his head, into his beard, and even onto the edges of his garments. And the amount of oil to attain that is a picture of something over the top. It's exaggerated. And now, and now David, he narrows it down, not, not just the priest, but to an individual priest. It's Aaron. Aaron. It says Aaron's beard. Aaron, he's a special priest since he was the first priest. The mention of the name Aaron, it, it adds gravity to this psalm. It, it, this was the name of the first and foremost high priest that founded the priesthood according to God's plan in the tribe of Levi. And to know that every generation that would follow in the tribe of Levi would be a minister before the Lord in the temple, and he'd be re representing the entire nation before Yahweh. And that here is a spirit-filled worship position and duty to represent God to the nation and to be the nation's representative before God. 
And so David is saying, when brothers dwell together in unity, it is similar to the Holy Spirit coming down generously and soaking everything. That's fellowship. That's unity. And it's a rich and most worshipful experience that you could imagine. And as the priest was anointed, he would stand with his chest plate on it, with 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he entered in to lead the people in worship. And he represented them before Yahweh. And the priest, he would offer gifts and sacrifices before God on behalf of the people, assuring them that promised forgiveness and the blessing that God would grant them. And so this picture of anointing oil teaches us something about true spiritual unity. This oil was abundant, So true spiritual unity has a generosity to it. It has a pleasantness to it. The good and pleasant aroma of the oil matches the inherent nature of spiritual unity that is both good and pleasant. Okay, it may not be, you might not see it as you read your scriptures, but look at the, look at the text. It says coming down. See, it's repeated three times. Coming down, coming down, coming down. And so that's a reminder that true unity is sent down from above. True unity is not stirred up. It's not conjured up from within us. True unity finds its origin from above. It's running down into uh, Aaron's robes and through his beard. The most spiritual uh, experience that Aaron experienced standing before the Lord, right? He's set apart. And that's what unity with believers is like. While the world searches for any semblance of unity, Christians know and have the source of true unity. So there is one who unites all true believers together, and that is Christ. True spiritual unity is a precious gift from God who accomplishes it. David, he's emphasizing that unity is a gift from God coming down, coming down, coming down. Three times the text says it like every good and perfect gift that comes down from the Father of lights, James says. It teaches us that spirit, this spirit of unity, that true fellowship among God's people is divine. You know, spiritual unity in the church today should be, it should be broad and spilling over, right? We should see it after service as we sit and talk with one another. We should see it in your homes, not just on Sundays. Unity isn't just a Sunday thing. Christians ought to love to be with one another for encouragement and to care for one another. So do you realize that you have more in common with another believer on the other side of the world than you do with a non-believing family member? It's true. Those who truly know God are marked by love for other Christians. That's one evidence that you are a Christian. That if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you love God, then you will love God's people. If you love God, then you will love the church. So we need the community of believers. Each one of us needs it. We need the fellowship. It's why we had membership class last, last month. It's why at the end of service, we're going to extend the right hand of fellowship this morning. It's not just a tradition, but it's a visible commitment to Christ and his people. It's a rejection of the overvalued and rebellious independence of our American culture and the embrace of the loving accountability and submission to the leadership for our own soul's sake. 
Yes, attending church is one thing, but being a part of what God is doing is an entire, entirely different experience. Joining this body formally and officially is the practical outworking of this commitment to spiritual unity. Members agree to participate, to give, to care, to listen to, to learn, to hold each other accountable. That's what membership is. That's what unity in brotherhood is. So if the first snapshot of spiritual unity is oil, then the second one we see in verse 3 is another liquid illustration, less viscous, but liquid nonetheless. What does the text say? Unity is like the dew of Hermon. And we all know what dew is, right? It's the droplets of water that appears on grass or the surfaces in the morning or evening due to condensation, right? And David says, true spiritual unity is like water droplets. But not just any water droplets. It's the water droplets that form on Mount Hermon. Well, what does that mean? Well, Mount Hermon, a little geography lesson, Mount Hermon is the highest peak in Israel. It stands at 9,232 feet above sea level. And it's snow-capped for most of the year. And David says, unity is like the dew of Hermon. And so how in the world is spiritual unity like the dew of Mount Hermon? Well, Mount Hermon is in the northern part of Israel. Northern Israel is lush. It's green. And it contains the headwaters of the Jordan River that run the length of Israel and end up in the Dead Sea. Right? There's water everywhere in the north. But look at the text, verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. Well, if you know the topography of Israel again, Mount Zion is over 100 miles away. And Mount Zion here, we know that's where Jerusalem is. Again, if you know anything about Israel, you know that Jerusalem is arid and it's dry and it's brown. Nothing like northern Israel. Mount Zion is about 7,000 feet lower in elevation than Hermon. And both mountains would have experienced some level of dew. But scripturally, not just the water cycle that he's talking about. Scripturally, we see that dew is representative or symbolic of God's blessing. In the Old Testament, dew was as necessary as rain. And dew supported new life for agriculture. And so what I want you to see in verse 3 is the comparison to Hermon and to Zion. That's what's important. He says, it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the Mount of Zion. And though the language there is not very precise, it's poetic in nature, the meaning is very, very important. Remember, again, Mount Hermon, this massive mountain, snow-capped in the winter, lush and fertile. And the journey from uh, Mount Hermon or from Jerusalem, Mount Zion, to Mount Hermon, it's, it's kind of similar from going from Santa Clarita to Big Bear. All right, it'd be, that would be refreshing, right? We, we kind of see Big Bear, Lake Arrowhead, as an escape or a, a, a refreshing time where you can step out of the cabin and, and breathe the fresh air. You know, Santa Clarita now, our hills are currently turning brown, but Big Bear, with its lake and the green trees, would, would be a welcome escape. And in the contrast between Zion and Hermon, it's obvious. One is in the north, one is in the south. One is high, one is not so high. Both have precipitation, but one has a ton more. 
And though this is poetic language and it's laid out in such a beautiful way, there's no way that the dew on Mount Hermon could ever flow down through the Jordan Valley then up to Zion. It's just not possible. That's not how the water cycle works in Israel. And so what is David getting at? David is describing Hermon-like conditions happening in Zion. You know, if you have been here for any length of time, we experienced something like this on February 25th of this year. That Saturday in February, we had snow that fell here in Santa Clarita. And it started to look like Big Bear, right? At least at my house it did. And it's a, it's a big deal when snow falls here. But think about it, if, if having Jerusalem look like Hermon is even more spectacular if it happened. And really, if it did, it would only be a divine act, right? You could literally translate verse three, the dew of Hermon going down on the mountains of Zion, or the NIV does a good job here. It says, it is, is, it's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. One Old Testament scholar explains these illustrations this way. It says the two distinct illustrations, first the oil of consecration pointing to the unity and sacred blessing from God, and then the second dealing with a miracle. Hermon's dew falling on Zion Hill. Hermon was the chief mountain of the north, Zion the chief mountain of the south. That they should be united in this way could only be an act of God. Such then, said David, is the unity of the family of God's people in a God-wrought miracle. It is a miracle. Those are the illustrations of spiritual unity, like oil running down Aaron's beard, that sacred priest who brought the people to God, who unified them all nationally. The good and sweet pleasantness of the worship of God with God's people, and then the refreshing cool of life-giving dew on Mount Hermon, descending on the most important geographical spot on the planet, the place where God's people were to worship, the place where the temple was found, the place where Christ will come. This is the most significant geographical space on the planet, Mount Zion. And so as people traveled there, it was good and pleasant for brothers to dwell together in unity. And that's the beauty of spiritual unity. That's the glory of Christian fellowship. And I hope And it's my prayer that that's how you feel when you leave here on a Sunday morning. As we go, uh, you know, as we come and worship together in unity, I hope that's how you feel as you leave. As we lead our different lives, we go to different workplaces, we have different schedules, and we, you know, uh, you know, as we visit one another during the week. It's the, the blessedness of unity. See, we don't have to wait for three yearly festivals a year to feel that unity with one another. We get to experience that day to day, week to week here at church, where people have the same concept of sin and redemption and, the, and prayer and resisting temptation. And so if someone asks you how church was like this week, and you can tell them it was like oil coming down through Aaron's beard, even to the edges of his robe. You know, it was like a supernatural occurrence of having the dew of Mount Hermon coming down to Jerusalem. Let me know if you tell anyone that this week. Love to hear it. But that's how it ought to be like. That's how it ought to be like. And so this morning we've seen the celebration of unity. And then we've seen the snapshots or the illustrations of unity. And so how does David wrap up this psalm? Well, it's exactly the way he started it. With a blessing. 
the last part, or point number three, you could call it the supremacy of unity. The supremacy of unity. Look at verse three. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. And then this final poetic line. For there the Lord commanded blessing. There's an immediate reference to the location of that blessing, and it also connects us back to the location of blessing in verse 1. And the psalm begins with blessing, and it ends with blessing. There, upon Zion, where brothers dwell together, where unity is, God is sending his blessing. Another commentator puts it this way, true unity is bestowed, it's not contrived. So many people think that unity is something that they can accomplish, but they don't understand that true spiritual unity is accomplished by God himself, by the spirit of God that knits us together. It doesn't mean that we don't need to work things out in the body. We still have Ephesians chapter 4, that we, where Paul tells us we have to pursue peace and must love one another. But the source of true unity is not down here. It's from above. And this final line reminds us of the spiritual blessing of unity, of our hearts being knit together for a common purpose, for a common cause, because we know the love of God in Christ. This unity is a blessing that falls by Yahweh's command. And he commands a blessing. And what does it say? Life eternal. It's not that unity creates eternal life, but there's, it's there when we delight and we cherish spiritual unity. The same unity, the, the, the same unity that God delights in, that he cherishes, is what we participate in and share in this sort of life. Remember, again, true spiritual unity is the concern of this psalm. It's a unity known by God's people, Israel, but realized now in the new covenant as the spirit of God is poured out on all of God's people, great and small, all are partakers and participants in that unity. And this is exactly what Jesus prays for in the high priestly prayer of John 17, right? Jesus prays that his followers, both past and present and future, may be all one, just as you, Father, Jesus says, are in me and I am in you, that they may be completely one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you love me. So when you place your faith in Christ, you are adopted into God's family and you are hidden in the son and your identity now is in Christ. He prayed for that spiritual unity, Jesus did. And what we strive to experience in the church today is this fulfillment of the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ to his Father. And as we think about unity in the, in the body of believers, we, we experience unity in three different areas. We see you, unity in identity. Unity in identity, unity in function, and unity in voice. Identity, function, and voice. If you look around... We have an incredible diversity even within this church. And the New Testament wants us uh, to, to maintain both those things, the diversity and the unity, right? You can be diverse and unified. It is possible. We read, right, because in Christ there is no Greek, there is no Jew, there is no slave or free man. But we are united in identity with Christ himself. Christ transcends economic or ethnic distinctions. He doesn't erase them, but he goes beyond them. And the differences in a congregation like ours is so wonderful. And they are evidence of God's creative wisdom in combining people together in one body. 
Not only do we have a unity in identity, but we believers have a unity in function. Just to illustrate it, your physical body, right, has unity when all the members function together, right? Your arm is not your leg, and it's not your eye, and it's not your ears. But when you function together as members, you're bound together, and it functions properly. And here in the church, it's the same way. All these members bound by love within the church. And on that final day of worship, when we are gathered before the throne of God, we will gather as every tribe and tongue and nation, not divided, but united in Christ. Again, don't get it backwards. True unity is not uniformity. There might be differences within the body, but true unity is centered around Christ. And that's all that matters more than any other thing in our life. Christ. Have you ever experienced tensions or strife, broken relationships, grudges, disunity, conflict, or discord? Then you know how sweet and good unity can be. Spiritual unity. Even though human relationships can be broken, there is a time coming where unity will be the reality. Because heaven is a world of unity and love. That's why the Apostle Paul appeals to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4. He says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to bear with one another in love. To maintain the unity of the spirit and the God in the, in the bond of peace. And that's why Proverbs reminds us that one thing that God hates is discord among brothers. And that's why Jesus told his disciples that one of the ways that they would be known in the world is if they loved one another. And so as Jews, coming back to the Psalm of Ascent, as, as they leave Jerusalem, Jerusalem unified in worship, and as we leave here unified, they go back to our homes, back to our lives, back to work. We're not just uh, unified in identity, we're unified in function, and we're also unified in our voice. And we're, we're unified in our voice to take the gospel to the lost. When we have the right love, then we'll have the right mission. So do you love the lost with the love of the Father? Then you'll pursue people. Do you love each other with the love of Christ? Then you'll let love cover a multitude of sins. You'll recognize that Jesus died for someone's sins, that if a believer sins against you and hurts you, you'll know that Jesus died for that same sin. That sin was wrong, but it was written and nailed to the cross and Jesus was crucified for that sin. So if God can forgive that sin, so can you. And you know what the irony or the tragedy of Psalm 133 is? David, it's his author, the author of Psalm 133, experienced the opposite of this psalm. Right? His own house would be divided. His son usurping the throne, rebelling until death. And as a consequence for David's own sin, you see this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. The prophet says, the sword shall never depart from your house. That was the punishment. Yet David saw the beauty of fellowship in 2 Samuel 6 through 11. And that fellowship or that unity is just a foretaste of glory divine. 
God's ultimate expression of unity is shown as God brings his people together and unites them by the Holy Spirit in salvation in the church because the death, resurrection, and uh, ascension of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then ultimately he, Jesus, he'll eradicate every sin that thwarts unity and bring his people into one body where Christ is all and in all for all of eternity in perfect harmony and perfect peace. And as Psalm 133 describes it, unity as life forever. The worship and fellowship and joy that we share here at Church of the Canyons is a foretaste of the eternal life and praise we will have forever in the presence of Christ, life eternal. Again, so when you go home and you see your neighbor taking out the trash and ask you, hey, what'd you do today? You can tell them how good it was to be at church, how pleasant it is to be with God's people. Tell them that your church is united because of salvation through Christ alone. And if they aren't just, if they're not getting the picture, you might say, hey, church was good. It was fragrant oil good. It was oil that runs down Aaron's beard good. (laughs) Tell them it was refreshing to be at church. It's a breath of fresh air being with God's people. It's sweet and refreshing like the dew of Mount Hermon descending upon Zion because that's the place of worship. And God provided a blessing, life forever. That is true unity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for the truthfulness of your word. Thank you for overcoming our sin and bringing us into submission to your word. Thank you for opening our eyes to behold these wonderful things. Father, I pray that we would live accordingly. It is so good to be a part of your family, to know that you are the one who binds us together. You did not promise some kind of facade or some organizational unity, but you promised a genuine spirit-filled, active unity that every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has in common with every other believer. Father, thank you for unifying us in identity and in function and in our voice. Thank you for your work and for knitting us together. May we continue to strive for that peace, to care for one another. So give us opportunities to obey what you've called us to do, to engage in fellowship, stimulating one another towards love and good deeds, never forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, if you've never experienced this kind of unity, no matter what group you've ever been a part of, there is nothing like the body of Christ. Nothing like the church. And it is so important that I would invite you to experience this unity that only comes through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And you need to know that Jesus loves you and that he died for you and that he is the only way to God. And you must turn from your sin and commit yourself and give your life completely to Jesus. And you will experience the joy of salvation and true spiritual unity as you become a part of God's family. And I'd urge you to do that today. Come talk with me after. If you do not know what it means to live as a Christian. And Father, send us on our way with hearts that are happy 
to have been with your people this morning, mindful and beholding how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Pray all these things.